This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Over the last four weeks on Ambition Diaries, we've heard from 14 mothers and daughters from across the country about economic mobility, discrimination, work-life balance, and how the pandemic has reshaped our relationship to work. On this special bonus episode, I'm joined by Kim Rittberg, host of the podcast Mom's Exit Interview, to continue the conversation about what the next career chapter is for some of those women who left the traditional workforce in 2020. Kim was a media executive who quit her corporate job to run her own company. Each week on Mom's Exit Interview, she talks to women like Rebecca Minkoff and Gretchen Rubin on topics like finance, career growth, business development, burnout, and imposter syndrome. Kim is joining me today to talk about what she's heard from women in the last few years about how the pandemic has changed their relationship to work. Kim, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Kim, let's start with your own career trajectory. What made you leave your job and how did you decide what you wanted to do and what steps did you take to do it? So my epiphany came in the hospital. (laughs) I was delivering my second child and I was working. And that sort of lightning bolt popped uh, to back up. At that point, I had launched and was running the Us Weekly video unit. And I had a team of 18 people working for me. And it was really like truly a dream job. I got to build a business within a business, just the opportunity to take a print magazine into the next era and build them a digital video unit was the opportunity I always wanted. And it was going really, really well. I was really successful, not just by my own thoughts, but actually it was making money and doing well. And the new company said, we bought this company in a big part because of what you built. So fast forward to the acquisition, I'm delivering my child. I'm working on my iPhone, reading resumes because all these people were quitting and I'm trying to restaff it. And all of my corporate peers, many of them were fired or laid off, my boss, everyone that I had been working with over the past three years. And it just felt so pointless. (laughs) It just felt like I worked so hard and I finally was successful and it felt like it was for nothing. It's not like I got any equity. It's not like I even got like a big raise or a big title. And I'd already been thinking about the integration of my children and my work life. And with the second child, just that moment came of of saying, is there a way for me to get this fulfillment in my work, but be more present at home and have more control? So I want to dig into what the hell was going on at your job, because it feels like that's similar to what a lot of people are going through right now. Like, you know, we're we're talking all the time about this, like the quiet quitting phenomenon and the great resignation. And a lot of it seems to be built around burnout, different stages and levels of burnout, but like basically employees being asked to do more and more and more with less. So, you know, how did you kind of get to that point? Like what was going on that everybody else around you was quitting? Did you not have a maternity leave plan that you were, you know, working while you were in in labor? And like what could have, you know, b- before we kind of go to the future, if we could dissect like what went wrong in the past, like what could have been better there that would have made you want to stay? So you asked about maternity leave and I think that was a part of it. It's more of just a representation of how you're valued at work or not valued. So first of all, my maternity leave for my second child was three weeks paid. Oh my God. (laughs) That's completely laughable. So I'd already been there two and a half years. It's not like I was a new employee. It's not that alone that made me want to leave truly. It was a mixture of the industry is volatile. 
you can work super hard, but there's no predictability and stability. And I think it was a confluence of those thoughts and a realization that there are people doing it on their own. There are ways to create the life that you're looking for outside of the corporate sphere. And for me, it was, I had to just reframe my whole brain to say, there is another way of doing this. What is that way? And then looking around and saying, I'm going to start my own business. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur, but I was really committed to the idea of finding a career and building a career that I was in control of. You know, I get to say, I'm going to take my kid to swim today and I don't need to make an excuse for that. I don't need to pretend I'm at the dentist. I don't need, like, I can just go do that. And not to say those hours don't get worked at some other time, but just that sort of control. And I'm finding that now I'm running my own business. I have a video content and strategy business where I apply what I learned in media to brands and professionals. I help them get better on camera. I help them build video and podcasts and figure out how to grow their business. So I had to figure out what are these skills that I have in the, in the corporate world and how do I apply that to being a business owner? That sounds like a really great tip for somebody who's listening to like, what can what I have done in my full-time job translate to my own business? Personally, like I've been covering entrepreneurship in many forms for well over a decade. And the one thing that I've always thought whenever I'm listening to an entrepreneur's story is always, there's no way I could ever do that. And I think part of it is like, I feel very risk averse and I feel very, you know, most comfortable in a traditional full-time salaried job with benefits in large part, you know, because I'm the, the primary support for my family. And I'm thinking that that's, you know, the position that a lot of people who are maybe feeling similarly frustrated and overworked at their jobs and hearing your story and being like, yes, I feel that way, but I could never actually take that step. What advice do you have to somebody who's maybe kind of similarly risk adverse and feels kind of on the fence about like, that sounds amazing, but I could never do that? For sure, there are steps to be thinking about before you just run out the door and slam, you know, you, you slam that metal door behind you and you're like, I'm never coming back. Don't do that. Have some sort of plan. Number one, I always felt like if I try this for a few years and it really doesn't work out, I can still get a full-time job. I knew that. I have done similar, but a variety of different jobs in media. I know there's a job to return to. So I think there's that element of, while it's risky, I, there is a full-time option. There are tons of financial tips about how to prepare yourself financially, how to get your health insurance ready. I think those are real. You have to make sure that working for yourself financially is feasible. You have to make sure you have health insurance of some kind, whether you're buying that on the open market or you're relying on your spouse's health insurance. Absolutely, that all needs to happen. And I think that for some people who are really, really risk averse, I actually am one of those people. I don't think every single person should quit their nine to five. I don't. And this is a big part of the podcast, Mom's Exit Interview. I think every person, dad, mom, whatever, any gender, single, not, should just be thinking about, are they optimizing their life for what they want? Are there things that they can get out of work in a different way? Can they fight a little more for flexibility? Can they get more remote? Are they looking for different benefits? And I think that for some people, staying in a nine-to-five that you like, that's giving you what you want, that's the right move for a lot of people. And I think for others, it's not. That's perfect because there is your personal story, but then there's, you know, the, the stories that you hear on your show. And I'd, I'd like to kind of dig into that. You know, your podcast is called Mom's Exit Interview. So I'd love to talk about the topic of moms in particular leaving their jobs and what the what the women that you've been talking to over, especially over the, the past two plus years, are saying about why they're quitting now or why if they're not quitting, what are women feeling right now, especially moms feeling at work? Flexibility. 
That is the absolute top thing. We did a big survey of listeners and women across the country. And first of all, 65% of them said they would leave full-time to go part-time or do something else, you know, self-employment or other. And the top reason was flexibility. So it's interesting. You know, some people might think, oh, you just want to work less. It's not necessarily people want to work less. It's they want to work differently. And I think that for all the women I both interviewed for the show, surveyed for our survey, is the main thing is having that control over your time because so many moms also feel that added weight of the burden at home. So you're working your job. It's not flexible. You're coming home. You have all of these, you know, there's laundry, there's dishes, there's permission slips, there's clothing. It's just all these like little things that when you you think about it, it doesn't feel that big, but when you list it, it's a lot of stuff on your to-do list. And so that's really the main thing I think that I've been hearing is the biggest driver. And so you surveyed, I'm assuming just moms or just women. Do you get a sense that it's different? I mean, I kind of, I'm asking a question I know the answer to, but like, do you, you get a sense that it's a unique problem for moms in particular? Well, we only surveyed moms. And I think the one thing that really does differentiate it is that second shift that women handle. I'll say anecdotally, when I was in my 20s, I was a TV producer. On the weekends, I was selling jewelry for my jewelry business. I was in Bloomingdale, selling it to people, trying to get press for it. I was working two jobs, at least one and a half, maybe. Now that I have kids, that's definitely not possible. But just the idea of your limitations on time, a lot of your quote unquote free time is then given to your children or the household. You know, things that are related to your household and not necessarily childcare. So I do think that women feel it in a different way because the expectations, fairly or unfairly, are there and they exist. Um, And besides expectations, there are duties. There are simply responsibilities that have to happen in your house for your children. And so uh, that's what I think is unique to parents feeling that. Yeah. And I, I would say unfairly. And we and we have covered this, you know, quite a bit on the the show, the the imbalance of unpaid labor. I think with all of the women who left the workforce at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, a lot of it was due to lack of childcare at that time. You know, the when schools closed and daycares closed, who was picking up the slack and watching the kids? Mostly it was the mothers. But then, you know, you're exactly right about flexibility. I think, you know, and we've covered this a lot on the show too, is is now that some employers are calling employees back to the office. The big pushback on that is, but I've been living for two plus years in a environment where I can get my work done and still pick my kids up from school and still do those things and trying to force people back to the broken way things were before logically does see people bumping up against wanting to leave their jobs. Definitely. I think flexibility is the first thing that we hear from people. And then the second is that juggle. So already you're sort of working hard and and you're hustling home and you're with the kids but it's not just the childcare aspect but it's also the household duties so it's everything from just like dishes to laundry to for the children like permission slips and lunches and clothing buying and then play dates and birthday parties you know when you say it out loud oh they're little tasks if you write them out it's a lot and it's a lot it's a lot of duties it's a lot of time and across a week it just becomes this burden of time. And for a lot of people, they feel that it's not shared equally. So I think that's the second biggest complaint that we had heard. And that's something, you know, that we've covered a lot too. The balance of unpaid labor and emotional labor and, you know, mental labor does fall disproportionately on women. And we have seen that, especially during the pandemic, a lot of that unpaid labor fell even more on women. But when we're talking about the women that returned to the traditional workforce and what they're looking for in their jobs, 
But I do wonder what the women who have not turned to the traditional workforce or maybe who are approaching their jobs in a different way. What have you heard from or seen from those mothers in particular about like how they're approaching their work differently since the pandemic? So the pandemic obviously has been a turning point, and I think it's exposed companies, thankfully, but also people to the reality that remote can work and how to balance it. Because for some parents, working at home is really hard. The kid, depending on the age, is banging on your door and you're like, oh my God, I can't get a, a minute. I can't even write one email without my kid banging on the door. But the idea that remote can work, flexibility can work, and that push to have more hybrid. And so I think what I'm seeing is people pushing for that companies, depending on where you work, being more flexible to that. So I think we're in that era where everyone's trying to figure out what that means, but I do see that people want it more. That understanding that it can work, convincing your company it can work. Um, and that's something that's obviously new in the past few years. When we're talking about people leaving their jobs, and that's what you did, and that's what a lot of the women that you you speak to have done, you know, one of the biggest hurdles, and we've reported on this, you know, extensively in Vast Company, unfortunately, for a decade plus, like it, there hasn't been a lot of movement on it. But, you know, one of the biggest hurdles for women in particular, probably even, you know, moms, maybe more specifically, BIPOC entrepreneurs, certainly as well, is the lack of the access to funding. And, you know, women-led startups, for example, receive just about like 2% of venture capital we heard in Ambition Diaries, which we just wrapped, we heard from a, a mother and daughter small business owners that they weren't taken seriously when they approached grocery stores to carry their sauces and they ended up hiring a male sales team. Um, you know, this we published a story a few years ago about two women entrepreneurs who made up a fake male CEO and constructed and like corresponded under his name to be taken more seriously. One of my big personal pet peeves is kind of pigeonholing women who happen to be mothers into a like mom entrepreneurs and kind of like, you know, putting them in this other category and this, this view that their businesses are not as serious. Have you seen a shift in that mindset at all? And how have the women that you've spoken to navigated these biases? So everything you said, definitely happening. I've read the stories that you've posted. It's real and it's serious and it's important that when women are going for fundraising, they're taken seriously. The other side of the mompreneur thing is, and I now run my own business, so I, I talk about it from that angle. The one thing I would say, and this is not related to funding, but in terms of the mompreneur or women running businesses, there's a lot of power in community. So when you talk about networking, I am not a person who was like, hashtag boss bitch or whatever. Can I say, can I say that <laughs> yep. word? I don't know if I can say yep. that word. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. Yep. That was not me. I did not have my rose gold pen. I was like, whatever black dress with a blazer, come in, do my job. Like I, I wasn't, that's not me. But now that I run my own business, I'm finding a ton of support from the women who run businesses, moms, moms or, or women who don't have children. So I think that in terms of community and networking, it can be a great thing. And I think that, yes, it can absolutely be harmful and detrimental in fundraising and being taken seriously. And that's a terrible thing and absolutely needs to be overcome. But I think from my personal experience that there are these huge networks and these are people wanting to support each other, building communities, building summits, building networking organizations. So I think when you look at that aspect of it, it's a new way to find community. It's like instead of going golfing or instead of, you know, going to a, a conference and meeting people, you're meeting them through these community events. So I think there can be power in it in terms of the networking aspect. I'd love to dig in more to, you know, again, your podcast is mom's exit interview. When you're talking to these women about, okay, I'm leaving 
this traditional, you know, the traditional nine to five, or I'm doing God bless them, a side hustle on it, or I'm, I'm just rethinking, you know, my approach to work. What, what are some of those, you know, cause I'm kind of at a loss. I'm like, well, what, <laughs> what else is there aside from working a, a salaried job or like starting your own business and like all of that thing? Like what, what are some kind of non-traditional paths that you're seeing women take? So there is this whole world out there. And especially for moms, I feel like it's been caricatured, right? There's stay-at-home mom, and then there's climbing a corporate ladder. And between those, there's nothing else. And the truth is, there's so much else. So between those two binaries exists a whole other world of entrepreneurs and many people who would call themselves, I don't know, small business owners, part-time entrepreneurs, flex workers, freelancers. So there are women, I've interviewed women who are working 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week and earning more than they did before. There are people who are entrepreneurs and they are crushing it. They're earning as much as or more than they were earning in corporate. And it really runs the gamut. I'm working with and I'm interviewing people who are stay-at-home moms. They took several years off, like maybe eight years off to raise their kids. They're getting retrained. They're becoming social media managers. They're becoming virtual assistants. One of my guests was a three-day-a-week solar power executive. And there are all of these things. And it's not just like one or two people anecdotally here. There are a lot of people doing this, but it does take some creativity in your mind to say, oh, well, what do I do with these skills? And the biggest thing I found, it's not just skills or retraining your skills. It's also the confidence to say, I believe in myself. I believe I will find clients. Imposter syndrome, sort of taking your knife and just slashing through it. Like for me, I like to say this because I look at my resume and I'm like, wow, you launched a video unit for Us Weekly. You worked at Netflix. You were a TV producer for 10 years. Wow. But when I started my own business, I just did not understand like who would hire me specifically. Not no one will hire me, but who specifically will hire me. And it took me a while to really have that come together. What sort of companies could hire me? What were my offerings? And how do I build that out? And then the second part of it is identity. I, like many others, identified really strongly with my job. You know, especially working in media, it kind of seems glamorous from the outside. People want to talk to you at a cocktail party. You know, you might be, my husband works in insurance. Nobody wants to talk to him. They want to talk to me. Yes, <laughs> so, I, I love that. Like, it seems glamorous from the outside. I will just say from the outside. <laughs> yes, of course, I always post on social media. The time I went to the Oscars, you know what? Or the Golden Globes. That was two days out of what? 5,000 days, <laughs> you know, whatever. So I think that we identify with our job so much that when you take that away, I was like, oh, without my email address of Netflix, who's going to email me? You know, and really breaking through that. And one thing that I realized, I honestly let go. I let go of the identity. It took me a while, probably took me a year and a half or two years to say, it's okay. I don't need that email. I run my own business. I'm doing work I'm proud of. Ironically, that's what I want awards. Like I just won two awards for a big client project that I worked really hard on and was really proud of. But it only took me shedding that need to have a fancy title and to have a seemingly glamorous job. And I think that's one of the things that it's, maybe we talk about it, maybe we don't, but us identifying so strongly with the company that we work for is hard. It's not our identity. It's a part of our identity. It could be a bullet on our resume, but it's not our whole life. I think that's such a great point to make, you know, especially with this show coming off of the heels of of Ambition Diaries and really grappling with that, you know, reframing our thoughts around our relationship to work. And as you say, how much of our identity is tied up in our jobs and, you know, especially traditionally, 
in that the traditional idea of success and the traditional idea of, of climbing a ladder. And, and that, that really resonates to that, that idea of, will anybody take me seriously if I'm not attached to this big named household name corporation? Who am I if I'm not part of that? And I think, you know, that's, it's a great point that you make too. We did an episode about, you know, last season about why more people are freelancing. I think it is hard for a lot of people to think, beyond, as I said, like what else, what else is there if you're not doing a traditional nine to five or you own your own business? Like, well, there's a lot, there's quite a lot in between. And that kind of idea of diversifying your portfolio and can you work a couple different things for shorter amounts of time and just really approaching things differently. And the idea of owning your own business is even if you're freelancing and you're taking on a lot of clients, taking it more seriously and making an LLC because there's a lot of benefits in that. And one of the guests we had on the show, Terry Rice, who's this amazing business development expert, he recommended doing a side hustle for the thing you want to do. Test it. See, are you getting clients outside your immediate circle? So making sure there are clients out there before you dive in full time, but there really is so much. And you know, you see people, if you're freelancing enough, you are running your own business. And then some freelancers are taking on other people to outsource to. So you are running your own business. And I think sometimes it takes a little bit to take yourself seriously, to then say and reframe it. If you told me three years ago, oh, you're an entrepreneur or you run your own business, I'd be like, I'm a consultant. Yes, I'm a consultant. But at this point, I have a lot of clients and I run my own business and I have an LLC and I'm speaking at a conference and I have a bunch of different clients of varying sizes. So no, that's my own business. I need to reframe it to myself, but also out loud because once you say it out loud, it's real, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it's true. It's like redefining what gets to be called a business, who gets to be called an entrepreneur. Like you don't need permission. You are already doing it. I think there is, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome, as you say, kind of wrapped up into that. I have to ask this question because, you know, a lot of people listening to this show are managers, are working in it within corporations. And one of the most urgent fears that we're hearing from everybody in, in leadership positions is the, the fear of people leaving. Even in that, you know, with a looming recession, there, there still is a talent shortage and a feeling of people quiet quitting or resigning. If you're a manager and you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I maybe have moms on my staff or just anybody on my staff that is feeling these things, feeling this dissatisfaction, you know, aside from don't force them back in the office and let them work flexible hours. Like what can managers do to make work more amenable and kind of create this environment themselves to get people to stay? These are great questions because I think the whole country is grappling with this. How do we move forward and, and help people want to be back in that office metaphorically, but physically beyond the flexibility, I think a, when you're talking about benefits, offering benefits that really speak to parents. So instead of that ping pong table and that free dinner, no one wants a free dinner. They want to eat dinner with their family. That sounds like a small thing, but across the board, it's paid leave, it's childcare benefits. You know, one of the companies I worked at, they gave us free childcare for, for certain days. And I could call this company when our, our childcare provider called in sick the day before I could book them. Do you think that engendered loyalty? A hundred percent it engendered loyalty, both from me and my husband. And Benefits like that say to workers, I understand you're a parent and I don't pretend you're not a parent at work. You're always a parent. Your children don't disappear because you're in the office. Things like paid leave, maternity leave, it's real and it's also mental. When you tell me you're getting three weeks of maternity leave, what the company is essentially saying is, I don't care about you and I don't care that you have a family. 
And whether or not I'm going to take an unpaid 12 weeks is not the point. My loyalty disappeared when someone offered me three weeks of maternity leave. I was an amazing worker. I was the most loyal worker. I was the hardest worker. And I was leading a team of 18. And I got three weeks of maternity leave. That message is really powerful. The other thing that I really think managers should think about is when they're sending emails, what their expectations are, understanding generally parents want to be home with their children for dinner and bedtime. And if you're sending an email at six o'clock or seven o'clock, the people who report to you might feel responsible to ping pong that email right back, even if you say it's not urgent. And I learned this the hard way when I was leading a team, I would send an email because I just had a thought on a Sunday. That person was responding on a Sunday. I realized I'm not being a good manager because they don't understand, even if I write, don't respond to now. No, it's on me to schedule that email to be sent Monday at 10 a.m. or Monday at 9 a.m. Do not send that email during bedtime. Do not send that email during dinner time, and do not send that email on Saturday unless it's urgent. If it's urgent, absolutely. Do whatever you need to do. But a lot of the work, it creates an expectation of this immediacy. And then those few hours that a parent has after they get home is eaten up by more work. And their children are there. Not only are their children there, their children are there and they want that time. So if you start to respect your workers' time, you will get that back in loyalty. They will know that you are considering them as a whole person. Yeah. We are a, a audio-only podcast, obviously, but um, if we were, there was video, you would see how deeply I'm nodding my head along, along with you. I think if there's one takeaway for managers, it's really to walk the walk along. You know, it doesn't mean anything to say you're flexible. You can work whenever if you're pinging somebody at dinner time, and like to get that, you know, to understand that, and like on the on the converse, as you said, you know, I'm guilty of it. Being a mom, I have my second shift of work comes after the kids go to bed, and then I log back on and like address things that I I didn't get to at dinner time and all of that, and. I send messages at 11 p.m., 10 p.m. sometimes, and same thing, don't expect a response. Nine times out of 10, I do get a response. And so it, it is really sometimes as simple as scheduling it and being aware of people's time and being flexible. That advice seems really small, but when you add it up, it represents a calendar where there are sort of grayed out sections for bedtime and dinner time. Also, though, I worked in corporate for 15 years. I loved my jobs. A lot of those people are now my clients. They're still my friends. I loved all of my media jobs. However, I think these lessons are important. And my last thing would also be meeting glut. I think the last thing that I think really hurts is meeting glut. When you work at a company and there's too many meetings during the time you're supposed to be doing work, and then everyone's expected to work at night, that's facilitating burnout. I think in addition to creating a good realistic schedule is not filling the nine to five or 10 to six or nine to seven with back-to-back meetings. Yes, 100%. And and by the way, with all of the questions of return to work, who should return to work, like there is work that needs to get done. People are paid to work. I think people who are paid to work should work and that is an expectation. And if work is urgent, then send an urgent email. But besides that, respect the boundaries. And I think you will see that back. You will have more loyal workers. They will work harder and they will stay there forever. Moms make amazing workers because they're very efficient with their time. I never had a coffee. I don't think I took one person for drinks. I don't think I had one social coffee when I was working when I had my first baby. I was the most efficient worker ever. 
I coined this when I had my first child and I think I was like, I was homesick with him or something and he was napping. I'm like, there is nobody more productive than a mom whose baby is napping. Cause you were like, I have to get so much done. I have a two hour time frame, a one hour time frame to get things done. And you know, and there's, there's research that, that, that backs it up that parents do actually make loyal and productive employees. It's not a charity to have a parent on your staff and give them flexibility. And yes, like these small things do pay dividends in in loyalty. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's if you're a company and you're thinking about how you can keep parents as workers, it's not a charity. You look at people because of how old people are when they have children nowadays, you're getting people with 10 or 15 years of experience. And if you can adjust a little bit the expectations, you will have this incredible workforce of efficient people who are loyal and appreciative because they'll understand that this company is looking out for them and understands they're a parent. So it's not just that you're doing charity work they're really good workers. And so I think that I'm excited, to be honest, I feel like companies are more aware of it and the conversation is happening. And so hopefully those benefits will change and those expectations will change. I am hopeful that it is at least, you know, part of the conversation now in a way that it hadn't been for so long. And, and, you know, on the converse, I'm excited that this, this rethinking of our relationship to work and, and how, you know, that there isn't just one path for everybody is something that's probably long overdue as well. Well, Kim, I think we can, you know, have this conversation for for hours and hours, but I'll stop it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Kate. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. How has your relationship to work changed post-pandemic? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. And if you haven't already, don't forget to go back and listen to our special four-part mini-series Ambition Diaries in this feed. You can also head to fastcompany.com slash ambition hyphen diaries for photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters in the series. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Thank you.